Welcome to the weekly retail politics podcast where we deliver to you one download at a time the information you need to make the best decisions over how you want your government to operate. I'm your host, Jerry Shields, a former longtime government newspaper reporter across this great nation, covering everyone from the Copley Borough Council to our U.S. Congress. Today, we will be discussing the politics of race in America, an issue that has once again reared its ugly head in our country following the killing last spring in Minneapolis of unarmed African-American George Floyd at the hands of a white police officer. I am delighted to introduce you to today's guest, a woman the great poet Maya Angelou would call a shero, Miss Phyllis Alexander, the past president and board member of the National Building Coalition Building Institute, I'm sorry, outside Washington, D.C. Hello, Phyllis. Hey, Jerry. How are you? All righty. You and I haven't seen each other in <laughs> years, uh, but when I saw your photo on social media, I was stunned. I said, you don't look like you've aged at all. I mean, what what fountain are you drinking out of? This is amazing. <laughs> That's a great way to start the conversation. <laughs> well, well you thank you for joining all. us. We really do appreciate it. But let's get to it. We met in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I was the city hall reporter, and you were the director of the Bureau of Human Relations relations and equal opportunity. Tell us about the mission of that group. Oh, that was over 30 years ago, but the mission remains the same. The city of Allentown, oh, I don't know, maybe in the 60s, 70s, decided that they wanted to have an um, an anti-oppression ordinance. And it's an ordinance that says within the city of Allentown, it is illegal to discriminate. Um, on the basis of race and various other identities in the areas of employment, housing, and public accommodations. So I and my staff, we um, monitored, implemented, actualized that, that ordinance. And so when and if people within the city felt like they had been the victim of discrimination in the ways I described, they would bring their complaint to us. So that was one arm of that department. The other arm was to do affirmative action within the city of Allentown. And the third arm was to do community engagement. So that seemed pretty progressive to me since it was like 60s and 70s, because, you know, given that Allentown and as was depicted in the Billy Joel song, you know, the image is white guys in hard hats carrying lunch pails. Uh, what Did you find that to be pretty progressive for a city like that? <laughs> I don't know how they got that ordinance because the city was not progressive. So I don't really know the history of how that happened, but it slipped through, squeaked through. I don't even know, but no, the city was not, was definitely not progressive. Right. And the agency was eventually abolished at the wishes of city councilwoman at the time, Emma Tropiano. We could have a whole podcast on Emma. Uh, she was a huge presence in the city. But the best way to sum her up is to say she was Donald Trump way before Donald Trump. He was still a playboy <laughs> in New York. So that'll give listeners an idea of the challenge that you faced in your role. Yeah. So uh, so I was the city hall reporter. I was walking through city hall one day fishing for stories and I saw you in the hall and I said, hey, Phyllis, what are you up to? And you said that you had just returned from conducting racial sensitivity training at the police academy. Tell me what that training entailed. Well, 
I um, I probably said that to you because I was probably venting. I'm sure the training didn't go that well, uh, similar to the training I did for you and your group. But it entailed trying to get in that at that time we're talking predominantly white men to recognize that racism exists, existed and continues to exist, but at that time existed. And what are they going to do to make sure they're not colluding with it and are treating all citizens from a place of respect and equality and equity, you know, all of that good stuff. So it was about trying to get police to do better than the system of racism would have them do. Did you feel that it worked? Did you feel it was helpful? You know, I can't remember the the training, to tell you the truth, but I can't imagine (laughs) that there was any kind of uh, aha moment or kumbaya moment. I mean, I would imagine individuals maybe had some enlightenment or some insight but whether right. or not it changed the system, it would not appear that is the case. Yeah. So I was so fascinated that I asked you to bring that training to our newsroom, which was severely mm-hmm. lacking in diversity. So you were gracious mm-hmm. enough to come over and meet with a conference room of reporters, and you gave us an exercise, very simple exercise to complete. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Well, you you're reminded me of it because I don't do this exercise anymore. But if I remember based on what you've already uh, prompted my memory, I was trying to discern and trying to teach the participants within your workplace uh, to examine to what extent their lives intersected with other black people. And so to think about, uh, and not, maybe not only black people, I probably had black, maybe Latino, right. Asian, that's I don't right. you that's know. Right. So yeah, how, right. how, to what extent did their lives intersect with people who were different from them is the basic And so to think about the different people and to think about the different entities like work, school, church, neighborhood, so forth, and to kind of rate to what extent. Are they a 10 in the area of um, uh, their neighborhood? Are they a 10 with respect to their church, which means high interaction with people who are different from them? Or are they uh, somewhat less than that, a one, a two, a three? So. And that was it. You, you, we had we put the minority groups across the top. We put the social institutions, church work down the side. And you said on a scale of one to ten, you know, right in your interaction with these groups. And I was stunned because I, I didn't have a three over any of those. I didn't have a, I didn't go over a three. And I, I just remember thinking like, wow, you know, I've lived in such a racially and culturally bankrupt world. And mm-hmm. you remember the reaction that you got from the people. Group. Talk a little <laughs> bit about that. Well, I think one word would be defensive because I suggested, you know, I suggested to your colleagues that you you can't represent all of the voices and stories within the city of Allentown if you have very little interaction with folks outside of your racial and cultural group. And when you tell the story of someone else, it may be skewed from a place of you not really understanding them. And the way I, I don't know if I said all of that, but what I do know is I said, look, you all aren't doing a good job. You can't do your job well if you don't have interaction with people who are different from you. And it was a disaster from there on because, you know, as I recall, your colleagues insisted that there was no way they could be racist because they went to school and learned how to be objective. I was like, 
that's right. Yeah, it was. And I and I broke the tension uh, because uh, it was it was kind of tense there. And I broke the tension by asking you, how do we improve our numbers? How do we increase those numbers? And tell us how we increase our racial and cultural awareness. Um, right. These- right. Well, to tell you the truth, Jerry, I have evolved. I guess this must be 30 years ago uh, that this happened. So in that time, I have evolved, and I would not do that exercise, and so I wouldn't get that question. So what I think the question is, is how can we who have been um, living racially separate lives, how uh, how do we do better? You know, and so my answer in this moment is that what people need to do is learn the truth about our history, about our U.S. history, because that history tells you right to your face that this is a country that has been practicing domestic terrorism against indigenous people, African folks. Latinx people, I mean, domestic terrorism has been occurring on these shores since the dawn of this country. Learn your history and face your history. I'm not trying to get people to feel guilty or ashamed or embarrassed. But if you don't know your history, you repeat it. And so here, what was it, three months ago, George Floyd Mm -hmm. is killed right Mm -hmm. before our very eyes. Domestic Terrorism continues to happen. And so know your history. Know why the whole racial categories were established. Read a, uh, read a number of books. A book I highly recommend is Cast as a Way of Knowing Your History by Isabel Wilkerson. Watch videos. A video I recommend, a series, is Race, the Power of Illusion. You know, so learn what's true about this country. Learn what is true about you and and me. So that's what I would say. And, and that's interesting because I did, that was a life-changing day for me because I did start reading Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Zora Neale Hurston. I just loved all mm-hmm. her work and I started listening to mm-hmm. music and going and making sure I got the foods and making friends. And, mm-hmm. and that really changed mm-hmm. me because I think what you were explaining in, in that session was that the foundation of racism is ignorance. And uh, when I'm trying to understand a concept, I'll often go to the dictionary and look up the definition of the word. And when you look at the Oxford Reference Dictionary, it defines racism as the inability or refusal to recognize the rights, needs, dignity, and value of a particular race and geographical geographical origins. So those two words that stick out to me are the inability and refusal. As a nation, we are probably in the tensest time that I can remember since the 1960s. But how do we as a nation jump over those hurdles of those two words? I understand that people will refuse to acknowledge other races. Are there people who don't have the ability to do it? Uh, I'm not sure, Jerry, if you don't. I find it hard to believe that any one of us would have the inability to face the truth mm-hmm. about ourselves and others. I can imagine that it would be painful 
mm-hmm. and that some people would not fare well. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if, and so, so perhaps in that context, there is the inability because the truth would pull the rug out from under you right. in a way that would be way too dramatic. And, you and built un- your uncomfortable. life. Yep. Well, uncomfortable. We can, we can usually negotiate discomfort, but sometimes trauma depending on the trauma, we might not be able to negotiate that very well. So if you've built your life on the belief that you are smarter, uh, a better leader, uh, more responsible, not a criminal, and then you get some truth that, and that I am as a black woman, stupid, ugly, irresponsible, promiscuous. Mm -hmm. So if you get some truth that says, you know what, all of that is a lie. I can see some people being traumatized um, and perhaps not recovering. So that's the only way I can see um, being unable to uh, receive that truth. Yeah. So getting back to the police departments and in the wake of these highly documented killings of unarmed black citizens, do you think police departments across the country need more and better racial sensitivity training? I think police departments, I think it's evident and apparent that police departments, the the officers and all other staff in those departments need training. But I don't know if there is a training that, I don't know what that training would be. Because what they need to know is that I am a human being. Because we can see in the way that police are treating people who look like me, they don't think I have any humanity. They don't think I'm a human being. They don't think I am a person. It's like they are stuck back in slavery thinking I am property. So I don't know what that training would look like. But, yes, there does need to be some um, retraining of the reality that they are not the only human beings on this planet, that I, too, am a human being and deserve to be treated with respect. So I think about the officer who killed George Floyd or the officer that choked Eric Garner in New York or the officer who shot Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And I can't imagine that their racial and cultural awareness numbers kind of referring to that exercise that we did are high. Right. Probably. Yes, I agree. And so I think your training that you gave us, I think, would work pretty well at least in getting them in the right direction. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the thing that, uh, that, that I'm, I'm saying that those, that kind of training could, could get them moving in the right direction. I read an interesting piece asking why African-American officers are not involved in these kinds of incidents. And I would think their one to 10 numbers of interactions with whites are, are very high. Does that play a role as to why black officers are not involved in similar situations? Situations in terms of black officers, uh, mistreating black citizens? No, m- black officers mistreating white citizens. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Well, black officers have learned the same thing everybody else has learned about white people, which is all the stereotypes that kind of ran through, that they're smarter, they're more responsible, they're not criminals. And so white black officers are going to be trained in the way society trains us to give white people the benefit of the doubt. Hmm, So in a way that they're not trained to give black people the benefit of the doubt. So I think it's just the way racism works that black people are, you know, we receive the same mistraining that everybody else does about what it means to be white or what it means to be black. 
Right. And there's a lot of emphasis kind of in the same criminal justice arena of, of mass incarceration of African-Americans in our nation. And those two words have been stamped into the American lexicon. I'm, I worked with the Maryland prison system for a while. And the thing that caught my eye the most was the harsh sentences that inmates receive. And again, I, I cannot imagine that the racial and cultural awareness numbers of the judges, which over 70 percent are white in the nation and the prosecutors who are more than 95 percent white are exceedingly high. I, I, I would have to think that their interaction with other cultures is, is, is pretty low. I don't argue with that. I'm sure their interaction, I mean, we're set up to be in isolation from each other. You know, our right. neighborhoods are segregated. Our mm-hmm. schools are therefore segregated. Our workplaces, um, I don't know if there's a lot of mixing going on in, in the workplace to, you know, it's, you know, so we, we live separate lives within the same country. So I don't I don't argue with you that their numbers are low. But um I I just wanna emphasize that beyond interacting with people who are different from you is the reality that we've been miseducated about these people. And perhaps the interacting helps retrain you so that you, you notice that I've been taught this that Black people are this, but I'm in the presence of people who are not that. So, but what happens is people think, well, these black people are the exception, you know, because I've been taught that black people aren't smart, but these black people seem to be smart, but they must be the exception. And so you get. That is fascinating. I wanted to go there. Go ahead. Yeah. I've been told you're not like the other black people, you know, you're the good, you're the good blacks. You're the good blacks. Right, 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 right. People find a way, even with their interactions with people to hold on to their stereotypes. And so I continue to go back to people need to learn the history and, and just unfold, unwrap, peel back what is really true. I mean, because we're living these lies. There are actual books I have seen um, and on, online, I think maybe in Texas, where slaves are now being called employees. Oh, and my. So, oh, my. <laughs> yeah. oh, exactly, my. exactly. Yeah. Oh. Uh, we're being lied to. Right. And um, as it pertains to this mass incarceration of African-Americans, the one thing I noticed when I was working there and I I was dealing with calls from inmate families and I could tell right away that whether they were white or black, they were poor. And and what about that argument that the reason there are more black inmates is because there are more black citizens growing up in low income neighborhoods where they're born Mm -hmm. into circumstances and environments that just just limit their chances of success. I mean, they start out, you know, Mm -hmm. just way behind. Well, that begs the question, why are so many, why is there a disproportionate number of black people who are poor? Right. That's the question that, that, is, that needs to be asked, because I can guarantee you that there is no five-year-old black person who is saying, when someone says, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? They are not saying, I want to be poor. Yeah. So something is happening between right. their beginning to self-actualize mm-hmm. and their actual growing older to be able to self-actualize something is interrupting their potential and so we've got to look at that and of course i believe it is white dominance or racism that is interrupting the potential of way too many people within our country and so people disproportionately end up poor and one of the things we need to do to interrupt that 
I believe, and I am not an expert on this, yeah. but I believe we have got to improve our education. When people can read, write, and think for themselves, they've got a better chance of getting themselves out of the entanglement of all of these systems that would love to keep them down. And it, well, it's also like, uh, particularly in the prison system, they did not have life skills. A lot of the inmates that had life skills. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, like, why do we study three mm-hmm. years of algebra and trigonometry that we're never going to use, mm-hmm. yet we don't know how to mm-hmm. be a parent, we don't know how to be a good spouse, mm-hmm. we don't know how to, you mm-hmm. know, do interviews and, and things like that. And you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the education system in this country, and the reason they do it that way is because that's the way mm-hmm. we always did it. And so you think mm-hmm. we've got to get to children much younger um, to, mm-hmm. to do the kind of exercises you did with us? Well, I'm not talking about life skills within the educational system. I'll say more about that. But I'm talking about schools where the teachers are the best teachers that you can have, right. where the books are mm-hmm. current, mm-hmm. where the technology is current, mm-hmm. where the classrooms are clean, mm-hmm. where the classrooms are not overcrowded, where you right. have... Um, a high sense of morale within the school. Right. Uh, I'm talking about those sorts of schools because mm-hmm. children want to learn. When they stop wanting to learn, it has been pulled out of them in some way because we are naturally, inherently interested in learning. But too many give up because too many are in the presence of teachers who do not believe in them. Too many are in schools that are dirty, overcrowded, and secondhand uh, buildings and institutions. So I'm saying that one of the ways to interrupt the school-to-prison pipeline is to improve what we are providing for our babies in these schools. And then they are less likely. I I remember being at Trexler Middle School, and I was in there doing one of my programs with the middle school students, and I could hear a teacher screaming in the hallway, telling this young man that he was going to end up in prison. Oh. Now, why would you oh. speak a word like that oh. over a 12-year-old? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's just yeah. not right. Right. So right. now when it comes to life skills, most of us learn our life skills from the people who are around us. Right. And if the people who are around us don't have good life skills, right. then that is perpetuated. And so we as black people are generationally impacted by racism and one of the ways it shows up is in our household and in the way we treat ourselves and each other so it's it's just it's a problem you you worked on a program weed the seed to improve a low-income allentown neighborhood tell me about some of the strategies you used there and uh you know kind of what were the challenges there well, that was back in 2003, and I had the audacity to accept the position of being responsible <laughs> to turn a neighborhood of 47,000 poor people into a neighborhood of middle-class, right, highly right. motivated right. people. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. was like, you got yeah, to yeah. turn them into the cleavers, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure, I'll do that. And so... I had a staff, there were three of us, and so that was our job. And we worked diligently to try and do a comprehensive approach to improving the lives of the people in that neighborhood. We looked at housing, education, youth, um, 
I don't even remember all of the different, you know, we should have looked at food. I don't think we did. But Mm -hmm. all of the components that create a healthy and vibrant community, we looked at. Mm -hmm. The biggest component, of course, is the wealth gap. You've got to improve the ability for people to make a living wage. So anyway, we did our best to try and improve the lives of the people in that neighborhood. And what were the challenges? What were some of the things you came up against that were just, you know, a big rock to move? Yeah. In hindsight, we were trying to make, we were trying to do programs. Mm -hmm. So what we needed to do was systems change. We needed to go into that school district and say, I don't know about the rest of the city, but for the people in this neighborhood, they are going to have to have a better education. And we are starting now and we are not leaving until you figure out how to provide the best education possible for the people within this neighborhood because they deserve nothing less. But we didn't do that. We tried to kind of work with the education system that they had. Um, housing, we needed to try and figure out how to in, in, um, increase the number of homeowners. But you can't be a homeowner if you don't make the money and you're not going to make the money if you don't have the education. You know, I'm I'm always going to go back to education as a real gate opener for a door opener for people. And the second thing um, that was an obstacle was the residents had program fatigue. We were not the first people to come in and say, hey, we've got a great idea and we are going to make your lives better. They were like, yeah. Um, you know, again, those last <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. You know, people have have been coming into their neighborhood over and over again, promising them the moon, and then as soon as the federal money runs out, they leave, and the only one getting paid are 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 are, are me and my staff. Right. So there was there was there was program fatigue. Well, there's no there's no troops either, right? You're you're you don't have any troops. I mean, you're in a war with right. no troops. You know, and um, one of the things we do here is we focus much on politics and uh, uh, we now have the most diverse Congress in history, but the numbers are still exceptionally low. So minorities make up about 36 percent of the population, yet they are only represented by 21 percent of the members in the House. The Senate's even worse. There's three black senators out of 100. Why are those numbers so low and how do we change that? Well, you know, you'll get different answers. My answer in this moment is we live in a country that is telling black people that you're stupid, you're not going to amount to much, uh, you're going to end up in that prison, uh, you know, you're irresponsible, you're, you, you have a criminal uh, mind. When you mm-hmm. go to the store, you're all, they're always following us because they think we're going to steal something. Right. And so you get inculcated with this, with this, with this misinformation that you're just not going to amount to much. And so it's going to be very challenging for black folks at the age of 12 and 15 and 20 and 30 to say, I want to be a politician because everything in their environment is telling them that's not the job for you. You need to be, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say any jobs and, and yeah, hurt somebody. But there are certain jobs, you know, these are the jobs for you, right. not these jobs over here. I am still hearing about students in high school who have counselors who say, you know, you need to be a cosmetop, you know, you need to do this. But right. no, you don't need to do this higher order thinking kind of job. So, right. Right. so part of it is that the environment is not welcoming of our talents and gifts and constantly telling us that we don't have 
talents, and gifts. And secondly, let us not forget voter suppression. So even if we wanted to vote somebody in, even if someone decided they wanted to run, we do have a real problem with voter suppression and people not getting the, having the ability for their vote to count. How do we change that? We're, we're talking about, um, as you look at what you're talking about, it just seems such a massive hill to climb. How do we do that? How do we get there? I know. I know. I have my head in my hands, if you could see me. I mean, it is... It, but at the other, but but on the other hand, is it really that difficult? I really, I'm just stuck on this notion that if we began telling the truth mm-hmm. of what has come before us, we could change the future. Yeah. We're going to keep repeating the past if we don't face it. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I can't get off of that concept that the truth will set us free and we've got to do a better job Uh, people who identify as white need to hear the truth of what white dominance has done in this country and find their heart find their soul find their humanity and while you're finding your humanity see my humanity and it is the truth that will allow that to happen and it's funny because you were talking about us all growing up in our own little areas. And I often think about human beings just kind of being other beasts on the planet. And, uh, you know, in the safari, the giraffes one with the giraffes, the lions one with the lions. So I think mm-hmm. as human beings, we tend to, you know, hang out with the people that are like us. But that's a boring mm-hmm. life. I mean, it, I, if you're a giraffe and you're running with giraffes a whole your whole life, I mean, there, there's what that's kind of boring. But you know, I, and, and I think of America without like Chinese restaurants, everybody, you know, like or Taco Bell's mm-hmm. and things like that. And mm-hmm. what you're saying, and I think a, a lot of people are saying, is we have to make a conscious effort, conscious effort, to go outside of that herd mentality. To, 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 mm-hmm. to, and I think when people do that, they will be surprised at how exciting and how how, how great it is. We, I was talking a little bit. I, I, I sent you a little bit of notes on the on the Spike Lee movie, which was uh, Do the Right mm-hmm. Thing, which came out when you were in Allentown. I was in Allentown. And I just thought it was an amazing piece of work because any great piece of work has to stand the test of time. And that was 31 years ago. And the movie ends with a white police officer choking a young unarmed black man at the end of the movie and the other thing that was in there was that you know the the italian pizza shop owner's son hated black uh people and the black people hated the korean uh, store owner they resented him and the store owner hated the jewish mayor and does it have to be across the board that i mean obviously it's the white black tension that's the highest but i mean is it across the board where we all have to gotta get out of that herd mentality and just start experiencing each other's worlds Absolutely. I I, uh, appreciate the way that you have uh, contextualized it and described it. We have to get out of the herd mentality and realize there is enough to go around, that we don't have to be at each other's. uh, We don't have to. We're not in competition for limited resources. There is actually enough food, enough money, enough housing, enough of everything in this country. Now, maybe in other countries, that's not true. But in the United States of America, we have everything we need for everyone to live a comfortable life, I believe. And so one of the ways to break out of being pitted against each other in the way that you've described is that we've got to relax 
and believe that there is enough to go around and that we don't have to skew the distribution of resources on the basis of race. We don't have to say, you know, this race gets this and then this race gets that because of your race. We've got to eliminate that false narrative and work from the true narrative that there is enough to go around and um, we can all have what we need to live a life that allows us to reach our potential. So it's really interesting because I was reading a book last night and I wish I would have, I wish I would have captured the quote, but it basically said what you said from the beginning of our country, we have been racist. We have, we have been uh, wiping people out. We tried to wipe out the native Americans and it's always been a law of the jungle. You know, who's got the most and it's the rich and it's the white and it's the and uh, I, I remember Mother Teresa. I remember one time they asked her a line. If you can't uh, yeah, I asked her about like how she was going to feed all the poor Indians. She said, if you can't feed a 100, just feed one. And I think that's uh, in our own world. We've got to start kind of cleaning up our side of the street, you know, and and um, mm-hmm. doing what kind of kind of what you're uh, saying there. And um it's just, uh, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, it's a, it's a hard road to hoe. I mean, and and not not in a sense like you say. If it's education, that's the that's where it's got to start. You believe, right? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you so much for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about the uh, National Coalition Building Institute. NCBI National Coalition Building Institute headquarters in Washington D.C. The executive director is Sherry Brown, and I have been a part of this organization since 89. I don't know how many, what is that, 31 years? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been around for maybe 35. Mm -hmm. And so we are dedicated to the elimination. We are dedicated to teaching people that there is a false narrative with respect to race and uh, relationships. And so we are an organization that has created workshops that helps people understand that um, they have been given misinformation about the other and they have been given misinformation about themselves. We try to eliminate that so that people can make decisions and operate outside of this, as Isabel Wilkinson says, caste system. We try to get people to understand that this, is, this hierarchy is based on false uh, premises Mm-hmm. and that they can stop colluding with it. Yeah. Uh, how are you seeing the future generation? I mean, my kids, uh, my, my kids, they're half Burmese American, but they're Caucasian, and they were the only Caucasians in their class. It was Vietnamese Americans, Hispanics, Indian Americans, African Americans, and I've never heard, I've never heard the issue of race come out of their mouth. But um, is that an indication that going forward we're going to get better? Would not appear to be. Yeah. As, as I look at the numbers and I look at the assassinations of black people on TV and as I look at voter suppression, I mean, mm. I don't know. Um, maybe all of these things are happening by people of our generation and that right. as our young people come up, they will do better. But we do what we see. Right. So I, right. I don't know. Right. Right. Know. Right. We're still in that herd mentality. And uh, that's what that's 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 really 
And and it's like you said, I would, it, it, it's it's been that way since the start of the nation. I mean, I read a biography of uh, George Washington, the founding father. He was a slave driver. I mean, he you know it was just mm-hmm. even going back to those guys. Well, we want to thank Phyllis Alexander for taking the time to be with us today. It was so great reconnecting with you. I know you have a mission that many times feels frustrating. But you truly are a hero because you remain passionate in your work. Uh, we used to have a newspaper motto to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think um, you've done that. Thank you very much, Jerry. It has been a pleasure to reconnect with you and to walk down memory lane a little bit and to notice my growth in these last 30 years. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You will. If you want to check out the National Coalition Building Institute, please go to ncbi.org. And if you want to do your part in fighting this thundercloud of racial tension that continues to storm over this great nation, please consider donating to the organization. I would like to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, our sound director and technical wizard, Brad Mabry. And if you get a chance, please go to Amazon.com. Check out my new book, The Front Row, My Jagged Journey, recording American history from Reagan to Trump. And you can read a chapter on Phyllis. (laughs) We'll be back next week with another edition of Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, remember, always read beyond the headlines. Have a great week.